0: today we face an inflection point one of those moments that only come around every several generations where there's so much change happening technologically politically and socially that the decisions we make now are going to determine the future of our nation and the future of your generation for the next 30 or more years
1: oh great like i don't have enough to worry about thanks joe Something right? No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other affiliates all across this nation and this planet that I don't have the time to list today. (laughs) Because once again, that's how much show we have. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist. Troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. One of the reasons we're short on time is due to this breaking news shortly before airtime this afternoon. It looks like Donald Trump's dumb special counsel, John Durham, assigned by Trump's then Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate the investigators' On the investigation of Russia's 2016 efforts to interfere with the U.S. presidential election, is now well. He is now zero for two, oh for two in his court cases as of Tuesday afternoon. I know, I know. So sad. Igor <laughs> Danchenko, allegedly a primary source for the infamous Trump Russia so-called Steele dossier, was acquitted on Tuesday of four counts of lying to the FBI in another embarrassing defeat for special counsel Durham. Durham has taken two cases to trial so far, and both of them have now ended in acquittals. After more than three years looking for misconduct in the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, Durham has only secured one conviction. That was a guilty plea of a low-level FBI attorney who got probation for having edited an email that was used as part of the uh, probe. The jury on Tuesday in Durham's latest failed case returned not guilty verdicts on all charges against Enchenko, a Russian expat and uh, think tank analyst who provided the bulk of the material for the anti-Trump dossier. Durham Initially charged Danchenko with five counts of lying to the FBI, but a judge threw out one of those charges on Friday and the jury dismissed the rest of them today. The verdict is a direct blow to Durham, who personally handled most of the arguments and witness questioning, according to Marshall Cohen at CNN. The proceedings were rocky at times, he said, for the special counsel, who lashed out at some of his own witnesses after they ended up providing testimony that helped Danchenko's defense.
2: (laughs) Always the sign of a really, really good prosecutor.
1: Also a sign of an, another excellent suggestion by a uh, uh, hire by Trump and Bill Barr. because <laughs> you the know best people. Exactly. Hi, Desi Doyen. No, I hi. forgot to say hello. Danchenko is a Russian citizen, but he's uh, lived in the U.S. for years with his family. The FBI once considered him as a possible counterintelligence threat, but then they later decided he was quite the opposite and actually paid him to be an informant. Durham had pressed Danchenko's FBI handler about the possibility that Danchenko was a Russian spy. To the contrary, the witness said Danchenko was a treasured FBI informant and suggested that Durham actually hurt U.S. national security by indicting him. Sounds about right. Well done, Durham and Bill Barr and Donald Trump. Y'all nailed it again. I'm, I'm sure you'll get to the bottom, however, of the uh, one of these days of the first of, of many of Trump's pretend worse than Watergate, greatest political hoaxes ever perpetrated against the American people or whatever he, whatever it is he says. I'm sure you'll get to the bottom of one of them. One of them will come true someday, Right. By the way, uh, by way of reminder, the real Russia investigation resulted in the indictments and convictions of dozens of folks, including all sorts of Trump confidants and advisors and campaign managers, et cetera. Anyway, there's your breaking news uh, for today. Meanwhile, as I discussed at the end of yesterday's broadcast, I, and, and I had to had to run through it quickly because I was running out of time. I, I hope you noticed. Desi, did you notice there there was a rather eyebrow-raising poll out of Iowa from the gold standard for Iowa polling, the Des Moines Register poll?
2: Oh, yes, that one stuck out to me. Uh,
1: Well, I hope uh, folks noticed, because it was kind of buried quickly at the end of the show. As I discussed a a bit last week, there are essentially five Republican U.S. Senate seats that, if the stars align— And more to the point, if people turn out to vote and are allowed to vote and have their votes counted as cast, there are five Republican U.S. Senate seats that could plausibly be flipped by Democrats from red to blue this year. Five of them, some longer shots than others, but uh, plausibly five of them could be flipped from Republican held seats to Democratic held seats in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in North Carolina, and even in Florida. They're all uphill climbs, frankly, for Democrats in in pretty much all of those states. But all, at least according to pre-election polling averages, are plausible flips for Democrats. Now, on the GOP side, there are two Democratic seats that, I see as plausibly flipping two Republicans in uh, Georgia between Senator Raphael Warnock and the troubled former football hero Herschel Walker and in Nevada, where Republican Attorney General Adam Laxalt is said to now be leading incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro by a point or two in the pre-election polls. now it's essentially a toss up in both of those races right now, though. In Nevada, I should note, 14 members of Laxalt's own family last week uh, issued a letter endorsing Laxalt's Democratic opponent, Cortez Mastro. Mm. That probably doesn't help the guy who, by the way, was one of the AGs who signed on to the uh, the, uh, the the Supreme Court case in 2020 trying to toss out millions of legitimate votes in a whole bunch of battleground states in hopes of stealing the election for Donald Trump. That guy, one of the attorney generals in that case, uh, could become the next senator from Nevada. In any event, five plausible red to blue flips in the U.S. Senate, two plausible blue to red flips in the U.S. Senate at stake in uh, just under three weeks now, as I mentioned last week. But then, as noted at the end of yesterday's show, the Des Moines Register poll, the gold standard political survey in the Hawkeye State, found over the weekend that 89-year-old seven-term Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who is now running for his eighth six-year term in the U.S. Senate. Turns out Grassley is only leading his Democratic challenger, Mike Franken, by three points, according to this poll. Three points, 46 to 43, among likely voters. Not just registered voters, but likely voters. That according to the gold standard Des Moines Register poll, uh, which was in the field from October 9th through October 12th. Now, since first winning election back in, I don't know, the 1800s, (laughs) Chuck Grassley has never actually won a reelection by less than 24 points. So could he lose this year? I don't know. I would still assume it's an uphill battle and that Grassley is more likely than not to win. But now it's a three-point race, Des.
2: That's pretty shocking.
1: At least if you believe the Des Moines Register. So... That is a sixth plausible red to blue flip that could happen if voters turn out in droves this year and support Democrats. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. It's going to take a lot of work, but it is plausible in those six states. And now this. In Utah. In Utah, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Deep red. Deep, deep red Utah of all places 2 term Republican U.S. Senator Mike Lee, according to uh, text messages sent to then Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, enthusiastically participated in Donald Trump's efforts to steal the 2020 election. But Mike Lee wanted everyone to know at a Senate debate on Monday night, he is absolutely not a bootlicker for Donald Trump. And those are his words, quote, to suggest that I'm beholden to either party, that I've been a bootlicker for either party is folly, Lee said. Now, things are probably uh, are probably not going well for you in your campaign if you have to uh, b- say
2: I'm not explain the
1: that you're not a bootleg. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, he was trying to both claim to not be a Trump sycophant in an otherwise red state where Trump is nonetheless not particularly popular while also trying to stay obedient to. To Donald Trump at the very same time, not an easy needle to thread, but that's what Mike Lee was doing at the debate. That was that was the tone he struck as he was trying to distance to both distance himself from Trump during the first and only debate and say he's he's still Trump's pal. The debate was with an independent challenger, a guy by the name of Evan McMullen on Monday night. McMullen is a former Republican turned independent. He's uh, most well-known for his long shot bid for president 6 years ago when as an independent he actually won more than 21% of the vote in Utah. In fact, he won Mike Lee's vote in Utah that year back in 2016. Mm. Mike Lee voted for him because at least back then he was claiming to be an opponent of Donald Trump's. Not so anymore. In any event, McMullen uh, has uh, remained a solid anti-Trump guy, attacking the former president as an authoritarian who poses a threat to democracy. McMullen is correct about that, and he's actually doing much better than anyone thought possible when the Utah Democratic Party, such that they have one, decided to not put anyone on the ballot this year, ostensibly throwing their support behind McMullen, who's been getting support from both moderate Republicans and Democrats in the state against Lee. Well, Monday's debate was McMullen's first chance to directly confront Lee about the text messages that Lee sent to. Then Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in the lead up to the January 6, 2021 attack. And McMullen has made this a centerpiece of his campaign. The texts reveal that Lee, who, by the way, Trump has endorsed, was asking Meadows for advice on how to contribute to efforts to challenge the 2020 election results. He was pushing for the alternate elector scheme that several states ended up trying to pull off. Meadows texts uh, his text logs, which uh, he turned over to the at least some of them to the House January 6th committee, revealed that Lee had offered his, quote, unequivocal support to exhaust every legal and constitutional remedy at your disposal to restore Americans faith in our elections. That was a text from Mike Lee to Mark Meadows. It also shows the senator tried to connect Trump to the MAGA conspiracy theorists and attorneys, Sidney Powell and John Eastman. I guess he was a part of hooking them up in the first place. Mike Lee was. He, the uh, Lee also wrote in December of 2020, quote, if you want senators to object, we need to hear from you on what arguments to raise. So he's basically trying to do everything he could to help steal the election. Well, Lee had a rough time with McMullen at the uh, one and only debate between the two on Monday night. McMullen called Lee's actions regarding the attempt to steal the election, quote, a travesty. Senator Lee, he said, that was the most egregious betrayal of our nation's constitution in its history by a U.S. senator, said McMullen. I believe it will be your legacy, he said, wagging his finger at Senator Lee. At that point, Lee pulled out a prop, a pocket copy of the Constitution.
3: In this document, written by the hands of wise men raised up by God to that very purpose, I followed it, I studied it, and, and I defended Lee, it to a, a prop We'll have 30 seconds here in a, in a moment. For you to suggest otherwise looks right in the face of truth and in the face of the Constitution. How dare you, sir? Mr. McMullen, you have 30 seconds. For Look, S- Senator Lee has been doing this thing with his pocket Constitution for the last <laughs> several years. Senator Lee, it is not a prop. It is not a prop. Please. Senator Lee, the Constitution is not a prop for you to wave about, and then when it's convenient for your pursuit of power, to abandon without a thought. That's what you've done with that, okay? If you're committed to the Constitution then stand up for our free and fair election. Stand up for the peaceful transfer of power. You did so. You voted to certify the election in the last moment. In the same way that someone knows a, a, a plot that isn't quite working out ought to abandon it. That's what you did. But look, Senator Lee is retreating to a safe space. Again, these are his broken politics of right versus left, Republicans versus Democrats. Senator Lee, you know I'm not a Democrat. You're not worried about that. You're worried about the fact that I'm an independent and that I'm building a cross-partisan coalition of Republicans, Democrats, and independents, and members of third parties to replace you and to stand up to your broken politics and those of the party bosses and special interests who line your pockets. That's what I'm doing, and I know it frightens you because if you can keep us divided, then that's how you hold on to power. You're used to that. But we're building a cross-partisan coalition to replace you, Senator Lee, and it must be done. Okay, Senator Lee, we're going to give you a 30-second rebuttal to that. I, I wasn't going to call that, but I, I think we should in this case. This is not a prop, and I don't carry it a prop. This is a reference manual.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah, sure, right.
1: <laughs> Whatever. What is it? How dare you, sir? Yes. Have, you, have you no shame? You played that old card. Drama queen. Anyway, how's that, how's that race going at this point? Well... Somewhat surprisingly, at least to me, it's currently seen in Utah as pretty much a dead heat, actually. Now, Mike Lee is still the favorite to win, according to The Bulwark, in a long article today about him. He's the incumbent and a Republican running in a deep red state against an independent who's never won a statewide election. But they note he should be running away with this thing. But the latest Deseret News Hinckley Institute of Politics polls in Utah, which uh, the bulwark refers here to the gold standard in Utah, finds McMullen in a tight race with Lee, who had been up five points and then just three points among likely voters in the last two polls. At the same time, a Hill Research poll has McMullen ahead of Lee. By five by four points, when a comparable survey by that same firm had McMullen trailing Lee by 13 points back in June. Now he's ahead by four, according to this uh, to this poll, all of which, of course, is well within the margins of error for both of them, but pretty much a dead heat. Meanwhile, they note respondents' unfavorable view of Lee has grown from 44 percent in June to 52 percent now. And that this is the first competitive Senate race in Utah in nearly 50 years, according to the Bulwark. So I'm not trying to give give anyone a, a false sense of security here. I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. All of these races are very close, they're getting closer, including the ones that previously had Democrats up over their Republican opponents. But my point is is now, and frankly always has been, nobody knows how these midterms are actually going to play out. The conventional wisdom just should not be assumed, presumed to apply here in these decidedly unconventional times when Republican senators are within striking distance of being unseated in deep red states like Iowa and Utah for Brigham Young's sake. I mean, I got no how I got no clue how this is going to go. I really don't. But, you know, as I've heard from a few listeners, they're very concerned. They're even depressed about how things are going for Democrats this year. Here's what I would say to you to paraphrase Barack Obama. Don't boo hoo Vote. (laughs) And while you're at it, help everyone else, you know, do the same. It is still very much an uphill climb in both the Senate and the House this year. For those of us who stand for democracy, who are fighting for democracy, who realize democracy itself is on the ballot, And I'm very sorry to say, right now, that requires, as I see it, voting for Democrats in almost every instance this year. But nobody knows how this is going to play out. And boo-hooing does nobody any good. Getting to work, however, does. In the meantime, the many successes... Of this current administration, yes, promises kept continue to pile up. If anybody bothers to actually notice, this news also had had just broken moments before we went on air yesterday. But now we have more detail details. Uh, President Biden announced on Monday that the online application to cancel up to twenty thousand dollars in federal student loans is now available. And it's barely an application at all. All you got to do, apparently, is go to studentaid.gov. It's accessible on both mobile and desktop devices, and uh, the form simply asks for your date of birth, social security number, and contact information. That is it. That's all. There is no documents to upload or anything else. Name, birth date, and social security number, and the federal government will figure out the rest from there. So, yes, you may be eligible for as much as $20,000 in loan forgiveness from the federal government before I even get to the first break in today's show studentaid.gov it is that easy it is supposedly just that simple and after having promised for months to act on student debt Biden announced in August he would cancel up to $10,000 from any borrowers who earned less than $125,000 in the 2020 or 2021 tax years Pell Grant recipients are eligible for up to $20,000 in relief Now, the Biden administration has faced several challenges to this plan from Republicans. Now, that could threaten to either delay or even derail the plan. Ask Monday night whether he was worried about the litigation. Biden said, uh, quote, our legal judgment is that it won't get in the way, but they are trying to stop it. They, of course, are Republicans who have... No problem, apparently, giving billions of dollars to rich people and their major donors and corporations, giving them billions of dollars in tax cuts. But boy, oh boy, try to give some of that money to people who actually need it and they will sue your ass. Our friend Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter over at Slate, however, had a few thoughts On those folks today in a Twitter thread, he said, if Republicans truly believe that Biden's student debt relief is illegal, well, they should promise to reimpose all the canceled debt on borrowers when they next retake the White House, which is a great idea. He notes it is entirely within the executive branch's powers to void a previous administration's unlawful agency action. And if it was if it actually is unlawful, well, then why don't you promise to roll it back? He says better yet, Republicans could push a bill right now that would allow a future administration to collect all debt that was canceled under Biden's ostensibly illegal program. Right Good idea, huh? Republicans should do that.
2: They should say what they're going to do.
1: If this is really unlawful or unconstitutional or whatever they're insisting, they should let voters know right now that they promise to get that money back from borrowers as soon as they possibly can. He says Republicans could even retroactively impose interest on the uncanceled debt. What's holding them back, asks Mark. I ask the same thing. So, you know, sounds like a good idea to me, Republicans. Put your money where your mouth is. Promise that you are going to get that money back from student loan borrowers. Uh, You know, and uh, presuming Biden's debt relief plan is not struck down, the obvious question for Republican candidates, writes Mark, at at congressional and presidential debates is, do you support reimposing student debt? that biden canceled and i really hope they ask that question i suspect they won't because knowing democrats they won't be clever enough to push it and the media won't do it on their own but if republicans really think that this is unlawful then they should absolutely promise immediately to pass a bill to force student loan borrowers to give that debt back do you think they'll do it yeah me neither For some reason. In the meantime, Joe Biden was out making promises of what he will do if Democrats keep their majority in the U.S. House in the midterms and give him at least two more Democrats in the U.S. Senate. So the filibuster can be reformed. That story and more, including Desi Doyen's latest Green News report, are still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the I Bradcast, Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. We have been discussing for some time the uh, the plan that Talking Points memos Josh Marshall has been advocating for for many weeks, many months now, which he calls Row and Reform. He's been calling for basically a promise from all 48 Democratic senators, other than Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who have already said they will not reform the undemocratic filibuster rule in the Senate, requiring 60 votes to pass about anything, that they will not reform that for any reason whatsoever. But therefore, we need a promise from those other 48 Democratic senators that if Voters allowed Democrats to hold the majority in the U.S. House and add at least two more Democratic seats in the Senate that in January, as the first order of business, Democrats would reform the filibuster to allow the previously well-established privacy rights and reproductive freedoms established by Roe v. Wade back in 1973, that they would codify that into federal law after those rights were overturned and taken away by the Republicans' stolen, packed, and corrupted Supreme Court majority last June. Making this promise to voters seems like a no-brainer to me. Tell the voters what they will get if they vote for you and then give it to them. If they vote for you. But oddly, congressional Democrats seem to have a very difficult time organizing themselves to make this clear practical simple easy thing this easy promise to run on well maybe they got some help on tuesday from joe biden if congressional democrats are smart enough to listen to him on tuesday president biden pledged that if democrats expand their ranks in the midterm elections the first bill he will send to the next congress would, in fact, enshrine into law Roe v. Wade protections that the Supreme Court struck down. Biden's pledge raises the stakes for the midterms, according to The Washington Post, or at least it should, which is now just three weeks off with early voting already underway in many states and with the Democrats' congressional majority in jeopardy. Biden said he will follow through if the Democrats maintain control of the House and increase the party's numbers in the evenly divided Senate. We can do this if we vote, Biden said at the event hosted by the Democratic National Committee at the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday.
0: You know, uh, we're only 22 days away from uh, the most consequential election uh, in our history, in my view, in recent history at least. Elections where the choice and the stakes are crystal clear, especially when it comes to the right to choose. And on January 22nd, 1973, I hate to admit this, but I was a freshman, 30-year-old freshman United States Senator, and the Supreme Court issued its opinion of Roe v. Wade, establishing a fundamental constitutional right to choose. Nearly 50 years later, on June 24th of this year, the court issued the Dobbs decision. A woman, and all all across the country, starting in my house, uh, lost a fundamental right. I want to remind us all how we felt that day when 50 years of constitutional precedent was overturned. The anger, the worry, the disbelief, the unbelievable fact that for the first time in our history, <laughs> the Supreme Court didn't just fail to preserve a constitutional freedom it actually took away the right that was so fundamental to Americans it took away a right and the fear that now uh, that most personal decisions may not only be made by the woman and her doctor but by politicians to make that decision the dobbs decision the court uh, practically dares women to go ahead and lead and be heard One of the most extraordinary parts of that decision, in my view, was when the majority wrote, quote, women are not without electoral or not, excuse me, are not without electoral or political power. Let me tell you something. (laughs) The court and the extreme Republicans who have spent decades trying to overturn Roe are about to find out. As they say in one of the times ago, they ain't seen nothing yet. Just take a look at what happened in Kansas, and come this November, we're going to see what happens all over America, God willing. You know, it's only been four months since the Dobbs decision, but we no longer have to imagine the chaos and the heartache it's causing. In just four months, abortion bans have gone into effect in 16 states, 26.5 million. Women of reproductive age already live in states subject to these bans. Today in America, there are women who have been turned away from emergency rooms while having miscarriages, losing wanted pregnancies, and told they need to wait until they are sicker before they get the care they need. And there are survivors of rape and incest who have been denied access to health services in their home states and been forced to travel to states that do provide that care. And there's so much confusion and uncertainty that doctors and nurses fear they could face criminal charges for just doing their job responsibly. Patients are being denied prescriptions that they've been taking for years for conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis, you know, because pharmacies are concerned that those drugs could also be used to terminate a pregnancy. So they're not giving them the prescriptions. That's not all. I've warned about how this decision risks the broader right to privacy for everyone. There's a thing called the Ninth Amendment that says there's a right to privacy. That's how it was interpreted back then. Well guess what, folks? That's because Roe recognized the fundamental right to privacy that has served as a basis for many more rights that are where were to come and to take we've taken for granted of late and they're ingrained in the fabric of this country. The right to make a decision, the best decision for your health, the right to birth control, the right that I pushed hard and it finally got changed, the married couples and the privacy of the bedroom, excuse me, the mar- I'm thinking about the Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. Imagine, well, I'll get to that in a second, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> but the right to marry who you love. Look, folks. Justice Thomas said as much in his concurring opinion in Dobbs, writing, quote, In future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, we're getting to uh, the, the whole idea of contraception, Lawrence, and Ogilfrey. Look, folks, meanwhile, and I just want to make clear, I know you all know, but I'll make sure they're talking about the right to use contraception and the right to marry who you love. I mean, anyway, I don't want to get started. <laughs> Meanwhile, congressional republics are doubling down on their extreme positions. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, has said that if they take control of the House, our work is, quote, far from done. He wants the United States Congress to pass a law that would ban abortion nationwide. Senator, <laughs> well... Wow. Senator Lindsey Graham called for an abortion ban that criminalizes doctors and nurses who provide medical care for their patients in need. If Republicans get their way with a national ban, it won't matter where you live in America. So let me be very clear. If such a bill were to pass in the next several years, I'll veto it. We can't let it pass in the first instance. Immediately after the Dobbs decision came down, I signed an order, and my administration took a number of actions to protect the access to reproductive health care, including emergency medical care, to protect a woman's right to travel from a state that prohibits abortion to a state that allows it, and to protect the privacy of sensitive health information, preserving and preventing states from tracking women or seeking help, because that's what some will do. But as I said when the Dobbs decision we're fighting a battle in the courts as well, but as I said in the Dobbs decision, when at least, I want to repeat it again: the only sure way to stop these extremist laws that are put in jeopardy women's health and rights is for Congress to pass a law. And I've said before, the court got Roe right nearly 50 years ago, and I believe Congress should codify Roe once and for all. Right now. We're short a handful of votes. If you care about the right to choose, then you got to vote. That's why, in these midterm elections, are so critical to elect more Democratic senators to the United States Senate and more Democrats to keep control of the House of Representatives. And, folks, if we do that, here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, fifty years after Roe was first decided, the law of the land. And together, we'll restore the right to choose for every woman in every state in America. So, vote. You got to get out the vote. We can do this if we vote, folks. I also have a message for the young people of this nation. I've always believed that this generation is young generation represents the best educated, most talented, least prejudiced generation in American history. And that today we face an inflection point, one of those moments that only come around every several generations, where there's so much change happening technologically, politically, and socially, that the decisions we make now are going to determine the future of our nation and the future of your generation for the next 30 or more years. And it only happens once every five, six generations. I know that you may feel like it's an added burden on top of all you've already been through. And this young generation, my grandchildren and children have been through. I'm not saying you have to shoulder the burden alone. The task at hand and the task ahead is the work of all of us. What I am saying is you represent the best of us. Your generation will not be ignored, will not be shunned, and will not be silent. Just look at what happens when you speak out. Two years ago, perhaps many of you voted for your first time in election or volunteered for your work in your first election. You understood the choices and the stakes. And because of your experience and power to vote, you elected me president and Kamala vice president, the highest-ranking woman ever to be elected in American history. <laughs> Consents, them with your help. We've delivered enormous progress for the nation. The most significant gun safety law in 30 years. And by the way, if you give me a Democratic Congress, we're going to ban assault weapons again. I did it once. I'm doing it again. And the most significant infrastructure law in 70 years. To have us, You know, we ranked up like in the 20s in terms of infrastructure in the United States of America, for God's sake. We made the most significant commitment ever in all of history to protect our environment, ever, 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 $360 billion. And with your help, we're forgiven student debt. By the way, we really worked hard to get the system right as how you apply. Just since yesterday, 4 million more people applied. I'm keeping my promise that no one should be in jail merely for using or possessing marijuana. You should not be in jail. Together, we're making sure our democracy delivers for people. But we know there is much more progress that needs to be made. And we know that there remains real options. In 2020, you voted and delivered the change you want to see in the world. In 2022, You need to exercise your power to vote again for the future of our nation and the future of your generation. So let me close with this. I'm asking the American people to remember how you felt. How you felt that day the extreme Dobbs decision came down and Roe was overturned after 50 years. And I'm asking you, and by the way, it's not just affecting your young generation. It's affecting children, moms, grandmoms grandpops all the entire generations all the way across the board and i remember asking i want you to remember that the final say does not rest in the court now it does not rest with extremist Republicans in congress and finally say finally say about your right to choose that it rests with you and if you do your part and vote democratic leaders of congress i promise you will do our part I'll do my part. And with your support, I'll sign a law codifying Roe in January. Together, let's remember who we are. We are the United States of America, and there's nothing beyond our capacity. So vote, vote, vote. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you.
1: That was the president speaking at the Howard Theater in D.C. on Tuesday morning. But uh, codifying Roe, as he discussed there, is not the only reason to keep a Democratic majority in the House and to add at least two more Democratic senators, as he was discussing there, so that the filibuster can, in fact, be reformed. Codifying Roe is, of course, critical and... Uh, can only be done if the Democrats are able to reform the filibuster, and they can only do that if they have at least two more senators. Since all 50 Republican senators and two Democrats, Manchin and Sinema, are unwilling to reform the undemocratic filibuster rule that requires 60 votes to pass just about anything in the Senate. So... If they can get two more senators, great. They can reform the filibuster. The president promises to do so and and codify Roe. That's great. But that's not the only thing that they would then be able to do. The filibuster has to be reformed to also adopt the Freedom to Vote Act to protect the voting rights that the corrupt, stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court has all also rolled back. The uh, That bill would also ban partisan gerrymandering and help to get dark money out of the election system, among many other long overdue things. For example, it would mandate that every voter may vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. There's we an like idea, that. don't yep. we? Uh, and it's something that the Democrats tried to do. As a matter of fact, all 50 of them voted, voted in favor of that bill, but then Manchin and Cinema wouldn't vote to Allow the filibuster to be reformed. So, what eh, I don't know if they actually meant it. They, anyway, get two more Democrats in there, and that can be passed as well. And that is not all that can be done if Democrats can pick up at least two more seats in the Senate. Last week, Joe Biden cast the Supreme Court as more of a quote, advocacy group these days, unquote than an even-handed court, as he continues his opposition to what I, as you know, unabashedly describe as the GOP's corrupt, stolen, and packed U.S. Supreme Court majority. Biden said, I view this off-year election as one of the most important elections that I've been engaged in. The institutions have changed, he said. The Supreme Court is more an advocacy group these days than it is an even-handed court president said this during a virtual fundraiser for Democratic Rep Lisa Blunt of uh, of Delaware. For the first time, Biden said Americans are concerned, quote, about whether we can keep our democracy. Who's going to count the votes, he asked. Will it be the state legislature that can make a determination in who won the election? He was referring there to the upcoming Moore v. Harper case, which I have warned you about, in which the Supreme Court is is set to make a determination on this right-wing fringe legal theory known as the independent state legislature theory that would give a gerrymandered state legislature the right to make all election-related rules and laws and everything else in, in a state in federal elections, including who will receive that state's electoral votes. Never mind what the state courts or the state constitution or the voters themselves have to say about it. Completely unreviewable. Correct. Uh, Which is why Biden said there is so much at stake uh, when he made these uh, remarks about the uh, about the Supreme Court. And he is right. He's absolutely right. In the face of criticism from Biden and other Democrats, Chief Justice John Roberts has defended the legitimacy of the court. He said last month that all of the court's opinions are open to criticism. But he noted that, quote, simply because people disagree with opinions is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. And he's correct. But this is not a matter of disagreeing with their opinions. It's a matter of fact that the court's new 6 to 3 supermajority was illegitimately seated in the first place during the Trump administration. It was stolen from the American people and that their decisions since then have corruptly overturned decades of long-standing court precedent. And well-established constitutional rights and freedoms, as the president was talking about there. This is not a matter of simply disagreeing with their opinions. The court decision, of course, that had the most dramatic fallout was overturning abortion rights and precedents. But the six to three stolen Republican majority also made gun safety laws much more vulnerable to legal challenges. It dealt a major blow both to the Biden administration's efforts to address climate change and to the broader authority that executive branch agencies have to regulate pretty much anything across a whole bunch of policy areas. They undermined the Voting Rights Act again. These aren't things that we disagree with. These are just overturning everything, you know, decades of precedent. But the fact that Joe Biden is now even talking about the court in these terms, uh, you know, describing them as an advocacy group. Well, I find that to be very encouraging, frankly. He has said in the past that he opposed expansion of the high court in order to restore its balance after it was stolen by Republicans. But maybe... Just maybe from the way he is now speaking about this, maybe he is now finally reconsidering his previous opinion that it should not be expanded because, of course, it should. But, of course, without a Democratic majority in the House and one that is large enough in the U.S. Senate to reform the filibuster, there is no way to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And even if Democrats do get those majorities this November, which is still very much an uphill climb, but even if they get them, there's no guarantee that Biden or the Democrats in both chambers will support expanding the court. But I will tell you this, if they do not win those majorities, there is no way to make that happen. There is no way to expand the courts, to unsteal it, to unpack it. If they do win those majorities, yeah, we can go to work and force them to do the right thing, or at least try to. If, as Joe Biden says, democracy is now on the ballot this November, he's been saying that now over and over, well, perhaps he can be made to understand what must be done about it. Beginning with the uncorrupting and the unpacking of the Supreme Court majority, by expanding the court to help begin to set things right. But that starts with whatever happens in November. In truth, b- b- there, there couldn't really be much more on the line in these November elections. As Biden says there, vote, vote, vote. Thank you. And in related news, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report is next. Yep. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. What was it? Uh, What was what was that point you were making while we were?
2: During the break, yeah. I was just uh, reiterating yeah. what President Biden had said in his speech, which is that this is really, truly an inflection election. I mean, climate scientists have been warning us for years now that we have to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have a chance at getting to net zero emissions by 2050, which is, you know, under the Paris Agreement, what it will be required in order to stave off, you know, catastrophe. So yes, this election is an inflection So
1: b- pretty much you can take your pick of the things that you care most about, whether it's uh, democracy, whether it's the planet and the environment, whether it's Roe v. Wade and uh, the, those uh, freedoms and mm-hmm. rights. I mean, take your pick. Everything really is on the ballot this year. It's and a pivotal election. I, anyone who doesn't realize that and chooses not to vote. Well, I just don't get it. I guess it means I got to work harder. <laughs> we all got to. Anyway, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report.
2: By taking away the state oversight, that removed checks and balances, and it lessened the environmental protections. In both Florida and the U.K., rollbacks of climate policies exacerbated deadly climate disasters. Toxic smoke blankets the Pacific Northwest as heat and wildfires drag on in October. Plus, we cannot afford new oil and gas. It's going to take everything we know and love. Tomato soup, a priceless painting, and a climate protest.
1: All of those protests and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. They're cleaning up in Florida,
0: our friends in Florida from uh, in several states from Hurricane Ian. Uh, but it's not over. Thousands of people in South Florida are still without cocaine.
1: <laughs> there you go. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know everyone is freaking out about this protest and the tomato soup, but let me just underscore, it was 88 degrees in the Pacific Northwest, I think in Seattle, over the weekend in mid-October. Good lord, what's going on?
2: Yes, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. But first, yeah. two youth climate protesters were arrested at London's National Gallery on Friday after tossing tomato soup on the glass covering of the iconic painting Sunflowers by Vincent van Gogh. The painting was unharmed, but the protest by Just Stop Oil brought international attention to the new conservative UK government's expansion of oil and gas extraction in the North Sea that contradicts the country's commitment to reduce fossil fuel use that causes dangerous climate
1: change. So just to underscore, because I know everyone freaked out about this. They didn't ruin the actual Van Gogh painting. No. It was behind glass.
2: Exactly. Okay. And you're right. The protest sparked a lot of debate over climate crisis communication tactics. It highlighted causing damage to something valuable as a counterpoint to the irreversible damage of the climate crisis. Although other people would note that voting likely has more direct impact. Mm,
1: maybe. But I tell you, a lot of people were really upset, really angry, thought that this does not help the cause of uh, climate change. But it certainly made you look. I guess it did.
2: The protest came on the same day that a new report linked the UK's record heat wave this past summer to a record high number of excess deaths among England's elderly from heat-related illnesses. And now, amid a global energy crisis, a new analysis by nonprofit climate research firm Carbon Brief has calculated that the UK imports of costly natural gas would be 13 percent less today if its conservative-led government hadn't slashed renewable energy and climate policies 10 years ago. Mm,
1: So this isn't really about saving money and that moving to renewable energy is just going to cost us too much money?
2: No. The analysis found that thanks to renewable energy projects that the UK did build, Uh demand for fossil gas electricity is half today what it would have been otherwise. Go figure. Rollbacks of climate policy in Florida also had costly consequences. Areas decimated by Hurricane Ian might have been spared some disaster if, back in 2011, then-Governor Rick Scott, the powerful real estate lobby, and the state's Republican-controlled legislature hadn't killed off the state agency that managed development in risky, vulnerable areas for Mm -hmm. climate resilience. Mm -hmm. Weak growth management laws triggered a lucrative building boom of unchecked growth that destroyed the state's natural storm buffers and put more people directly in harm's way, ensuring even greater
1: damage. And several of those Republicans are on the ballot in Florida this November. I guess the only question is, will they ever be held accountable?
2: Yep. Now, Senator Rick Scott and fellow Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, who is up for re-election, voted against funding for climate resilience projects in their state in last year's bipartisan infrastructure law, and they voted against the new climate law. In a local news interview, Scott suggested that the federal government ought to do less for Americans harmed by disasters. You
1: know, you take personal responsibility government's there to be helpful but as we all know government doesn't have unlimited resources and um and as you know the government
3: is running big deficits right now so it's going to be harder and harder in the future for the government to be the, the backstop
1: so it's all up to the people to take care of themselves never mind the tax dollars that the people already gave to the government to help protect against things like hurricanes uh it's every man for themselves i guess according to rick scott
2: And, as you mentioned, over the weekend, Seattle, Washington, broke a heat record, hitting 88 degrees, the latest day in the calendar year to date, obliterating the previous record by 16 degrees. Heat and extreme dryness are driving an unusually high number of wildfires for mid-October in the Pacific Northwest, all the way up into Canada, according to the Federal National Interagency Fire Center. Air quality in the Puget Sound has, again, reached unhealthy levels due to... To the fires
1: it broke the previous record by 16 degrees Yep, everything's fine why worry for much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com i'm brad friedman and i'm desi doyan and this has been your green news report Yeah, you're getting much warmer, (laughs) uh, especially out there in Seattle, 88 degrees in October.
2: Breaking the shattering the last one by 16 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just nuts.
1: That's yeah, insane. So I hope uh, our listeners up there on KODX in Seattle and uh, along uh, Oregon and uh, KYAQ, KSO, KUPW, and in Eugene, etc. Hope we're all staying cool.
2: Yeah, you at guys. This point, stay safe and get out and vote, please.
1: Oh yeah, there's that. Well, no. If you live up there, don't get out and vote. Stay home and vote. Oh, you're it's right. Because mail. Don't right. be confused. Got to <laughs> get out. Else, there vote. you go. Uh, our thanks to our producer, Des Doyle, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download all of them for free at any time at bradblog.com. Those programs are made available to you for download for free thanks to those Uh, of you who are kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We are 100% listener supported and you are 100% a listener. (laughs) You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I hope you will find and follow me there. I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world.
4: My newspaper died. Well, technically it still appears, but it has no life, no news, and barely a pulse. It's a mere semblance of a real paper, one of the hundreds of local journalism zombies staggering along in cities and towns that had long relied on them. Each one has a bare number of subscribers keeping it going, mostly longtime readers like me, clinging to a memory of what used to be and a flickering hope that surely the thing won't get worse. Then it does. Our papers are getting worse at a time we desperately need them to get better because they are no longer mediums of journalism, civic purpose, and local identity. Rather, they've been reduced to little more than profit siphons, steadily piping local money to a handful of distant high finance syndicates that have bought out our hometown journals. My daily, the Austin American Statesman, was swallowed up in 2019 by the nationwide Gannett chain, becoming one of more than a thousand local papers Gannett presently mass-produces under its corporate banner, the USA Today Network. But even that reference is a deception, for the publication doesn't confide to readers that it's actually a product of SoftBank Group, a multi-billion dollar Japanese financial consortium that owns and controls Gannett. SoftBank has no interest in Austin as a place, a community, or even as a newspaper market. Nor does it care one whit about advancing the principles of journalism. It's in the profit business, extracting maximum short-term payouts from the properties it owns. This has rapidly become the standard business model for American newspapering. Today, more than half of all daily papers in America are in the grip of just 10 of these money syndicates. This is Jim Hightower saying, that's why our local papers are dying. It's not a failure of journalism, but of absentee corporate owners plundering journalism. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org.